thinking about resilience not as I am not knocked down by anything. It's accepting that you will be knocked down by things. And how do you get up? So I think it's about saying that it's an acceptance of life's ups and downs because you can't really care about anything without having ups and downs and learning to negotiate them, not learning to avoid them altogether. Welcome to the Hurt to Healing podcast with me, Pandora Morris. I've been fighting an uphill battle with my mental health for many years, and it's only now that I've started to see some glimmers of light. As part of my own recovery, I've made it my mission to support as many of you as possible on your own healing journey by sharing conversations that are more honest and more raw than ever before. I'll be speaking to some wonderful people from all walks of life who will open up about their own invisible struggles in the hope that it will provide a bit of solace and comfort for some of you. The Hurt to Healing podcast is proud to partner with Shout, the UK's first free, confidential, 24-7 tech support service. So if you're struggling to cope and need mental health support, please text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. In today's episode, I'm joined in the studio by a clinical psychologist with more than 10 years of experience. Dr. Sam Akbar specializes in treating refugees with PTSD who have been tortured, survived war, or sexual violence, and in 2022, released a book called Stress Iliant, How to Beat Stress and Build Resilience. There is no denying that life is stressful. We are living in a post-pandemic world where 81% of women are overworked, overwhelmed, and exhausted. But Dr. Sam Akbar's book is just what every woman needs to feel calmer, less stressed, and more resilient to life's challenges. Today, I ask her about what we can do to develop more resilience to cope with the ups and downs of life, how we can start understanding our minds more, and why our brains always seem to focus on the negative. So if you're feeling overwhelmed, trapped, or a little bit anxious today, this might just be the conversation you need to hear. So... Your work recently and your new book has focused largely on creating a better relationship with ourselves. Can you talk us through how we can do that? Okay, in a nutshell. Well, I think it's about really understanding how we operate, so how our brains work, how we are wired. That's really the stuff I kind of wish I'd known when I was younger. And understanding what we can do to manage difficult thoughts difficult emotions, because no one really teaches us to do that. So that's a kind of first step of improving our relationship with ourselves. So the second step is kind of tapping into your authentic self, which I know sounds a bit, but really kind of thinking about who you are and what matters to you. And again, we don't often think about that very consciously to really think about what what do I want to stand for in this life? How do I want to treat myself? How do I want to treat you? How do I want to treat other people? And when you're using that as a guide, I think it's a really helpful way of navigating through the ups and downs of life. So not whether you have ups and downs, which is what I used to think it was, whether you're happy or not, because that's to a large extent, out of our control a lot of the time, but how you face those ups and downs. And what I hope from the book is it it gives people those skills to do that more effectively. 
Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting because in creating a better relationship with ourselves, hopefully we can bypass some of the more destructive behaviors that we engage in. And if one suffers from something like, I use myself an example, Mm. like OCD or an eating disorder, quite often you'll use either the food or the obsessive thoughts, the rumination to sort of manage those feelings or to numb yourself out completely from the feelings. So to start actually acknowledging the feelings is quite scary. Mm. And then to sort of be okay with feeling the feelings. And as you said, employing tools in order to almost visualize the feelings or to be okay with feeling not okay, which I think is a large part of your work. Definitely. It's making room for what you feel. And it does feel like a lot of what we see in the media, we see on social media, we see on ads is beautiful, rich people having a beautiful, rich time. And, you know, we compare and all of those things are, they give rise to a lot of feelings. I'm not saying that's the only thing that that gives rise to it, but, you know, or losses or grief, we get all these difficult feelings, but we think we shouldn't have them. And I was sort of thinking it's partly because I have a daughter who's 10 and you protect them so much from those things. And I think probably you grow up thinking, as you should protect them from them, that those things don't happen as much as they do. And you become an adult and it there's a lot of navigating that goes on. And I think that's quite a hard thing to do. So who teaches you that you can make room for that and that feeling doesn't have to consume you? Because when you don't know that, then what do you do? You do exactly what you say. You numb yourself out. Maybe it's drinking too much or constraining your eating or sitting in front of the TV and scrolling on your phone, but not being present in some way. Yeah, and I think the advent of social media has exacerbated that tendency to just zone out and to live vicariously through everyone else. As you say, it's like, oh God, all my friends are settling down. They've all got kids Mm -hmm. or they've got high-flying careers. And and it goes on, the narrative goes on. And in fact, anchoring yourself. And I'd like to move on to discussing what you sort of have used as an analogy of yourself being like the sky. Because I think that's a really beautiful metaphor and I won't ruin it. So you tell us what your belief is. In, yeah, in that. it's a metaphor, not that I thought of. So it's, you know, appropriately referenced before I take credit for something. <laughs> I, I don't think I would have come up with something so <laughs> subtle and eloquent. But it's the idea that, you know, you can think of yourself as the sky and your feelings are the weather. And no matter how awful the weather is or how many tornadoes there are, how many storms there are, you can contain that. The sky isn't damaged by the weather. And the weather changes. Sometimes it's rainy, sometimes it's a bit cloudy, sometimes it's beautifully sunny. The weather comes and goes, but you as the sky can contain all of that. And I really loved that as a way of thinking about ourselves, not being overwhelmed by emotion. The sky is not overwhelmed by weather. No, and it's really, really useful because it's just a a little reminder. And it's hard when you're in a real hole to sort of use those sorts of analogies. I mean, I know that when I've been in in a bit of a downward spiral, Mm. the last thing I'm going to think about is like, oh, tomorrow Mm. might be a better day. But when you are able to almost become a bit more resilient and you're on that path and you're feeling that you can battle your feelings and your thoughts Mm. a bit, I think it's an incredibly useful analogy to employ. I think you've made a really important point, which is you might listen to these podcasts or read these things and think, but when I'm in it, how can I do that when I'm in it? 
But actually, that's where practice comes in, that you're doing these things. They almost become a matter of course that you start to notice your feeling and how you feel in your body when those feelings happen. And when you do more of that, what I notice is not that I don't have those feelings. And as you know from the book, the the idea is not that you don't have those feelings, but when they come up, they feel awful, right? They are horrible. I don't want to feel sad or isolated or lonely or hopeless. I don't want to feel any of those things. But what I can do with practice is that you can make room for that. When you can make room for that, there's so much more choice about what you can do. It doesn't change the awfulness of what's happening. It doesn't change the fact that feeling feels really awful inside you and you don't want to have it. It's not about wanting to have it, but you can negotiate it differently. It's like there's a bit of space between you and and that feeling. Absolutely. And I think that's an incredibly valuable point because what I've noticed is that the more I practice, the less time I spend in the sort of Mm. uh, yucky phase. It's like you're able to pull yourself up and it's really important to track your progress because you suddenly think when you're in it, it's like, oh my God, I'm not getting any better. But then you're like, well, actually that passed in two weeks instead of two months this time. It will get better. And it's so easy to fall into that mindset of, oh God, you know, I'm just not improving. I haven't got to the sort of from zero to a hundred in this time. And actually, I think what you're so good at doing is, as you say, creating that space between ourselves and our thoughts and realizing that actually it's that Viktor Frankl quote, isn't it? Between kind of stimulus and the response. Exactly. There's that that kind of space. And in that space comes your ability to change. Yes. You mentioned it just now about this sort of spiral that sometimes you feel like you're going down, but if you learn these techniques or learn to manage them better or learn to know yourself better, you can go on the upward spiral as well. And sometimes you're going to go down and sometimes you're going to go up. I think what is helpful is to understand that that there will always for all of us, be low periods. For some people, for various reasons, that might go into a much more serious mental health difficulty. But understanding that it's not that it never happens, it's probably that maybe it happens less frequently. And when it does happen, you don't go down into that spiral. Mm. And I think the point about tracking is so important. And I can totally see why you would go back and look at what you've written from a year ago because you don't notice the change when you're in it because it's like putting on a tiny bit of weight every day. You won't notice it. Or equally, the good habit, I mean, doing a little bit of weight every day will build up, but you don't notice it when you're in it. And I think that's where the real learning is because you feel like, oh, change is possible. If you don't feel like there's any reward from that, then it's really hard to keep going. Going back to the idea that our thoughts don't define us, how can we separate ourselves from our thoughts? What tools do you employ to do that? I think of all the things that I've I've learned as a psychologist, this has been the most helpful, that you don't have to buy into every single thought your brain throws up at you. I think we have about 10,000 thoughts in a day. But of course, the ones that we fixate on are the ones that I'm useless or a failure, I'm not good enough. But I also have a million thoughts that don't bother me. But it's the ones with the kind of teeth that get into us. Thoughts pop up in your mind all the time, don't they? And I used to think I'd have to argue 
with all of those. And then I learned that that never really stops because your brain will always come up with something else. And so learning the technique or the process rather of diffusion, which is sort of unsticking yourself from those thoughts. So not, let's say I was having the thought, you know, I'm an imposter. What if I could just notice that I was having a thought, like any other thought that I have in the day about going to the post office, and just tell myself I'm having a thought that I'm an imposter. There's that thought again. And when I do that, again, it's like the feelings. I'm removed from that. And I can think, well, if I buy into that thought, does that help me when I come here and I want to be present with you and give you my full attention? Probably it doesn't because somewhere else my head is doing something else. So learning to just diffuse from these thoughts and to see a thought as a thought. And does it serve me to buy into these judgments about myself? So you've referred quite a lot to Rilke's quote, no feeling is final. Can you elaborate on this and talk about why this is so important? Well, I wish I'd put it in the book, but I didn't. (laughs) Uh, So I think the accurate quote is, let everything happen to you, the beauty and the terror. No feeling is final, just keep moving forward. When you're in those feelings, those really difficult feelings, it feels like that's all there ever will be because you get such tunnel vision about them. But actually, it's really helpful to know that this feeling will change. It won't always stay like that. It's not possible for it to. There will always be some movement in it. And that's true for happy feelings as well, which is also really difficult, right? Sometimes you're maybe having a really beautiful, happy moment uh, with someone. You might think, well, one day this won't last as well. Tomorrow, something else could happen. And that's maybe it's about learning to accept that because we're always trying to hold on to those positive moments desperately. And I'm really one for that. But I'm not sure how well it serves you because I think it makes the kind of harder moments more difficult to bear. Having said that, you know, you just want to be present as much as you can in whatever there is. So I don't know, it just gives me an enormous amount of comfort, that quote. Like if I wake up or if I'm having a really challenging time, it really, really helps me just to remind myself that no feeling is final. This will pass just as everything else passes, good and bad. It will be different. And I think when you believe something is different, that is where there is hope. When you think nothing will ever change, that's when you feel hopeless. And I think that's why I really like it. Yes, it's incredibly valuable because that hopelessness and despair can set in so, so quickly. And I think that's a really insightful thing that you said about not wanting the pleasure to just last forever because actually, in a way, if you become better at riding the sort of the waves that life throws at you, but you do naturally become more resilient because you're not clinging on to that desperate hope, like, oh my God, this has got to last, this has got to last, because it's not natural. Strikes me as we're talking, what we're talking about is expectations, expectations that I shouldn't feel low or unhappy or anxious, or that I should get over it quickly, or that there's, that other people are doing something different. It seems like expectations actually are really unhelpful. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, 
is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. So how do you think we can become more resilient? So I suppose it sort of echoes really what we've already talked about, which is thinking about resilience not as I am not knocked down by anything. It's accepting that you will be knocked down by things. And how do you get up? Well, you get up by knowing how to negotiate those difficult thoughts and feelings and not pushing them away or as I talk about in the book, caging them. So controlling, avoiding, getting rid of or eliminating difficult thoughts and feelings because they come back in your face twice as hard. So learning ways of coping with that and using as your guide what your values are, what's really important to you. So I think it's about saying that it's an acceptance of life's ups and downs because you can't really care about anything without having ups and downs and learning to negotiate them, not learning to avoid them altogether. Yeah, and you talk about visualising us at our funeral. Yeah. And why do you think that's important? It's quite a sort of popular exercise. You could also do it at your 80th birthday if you felt the kind of funeral thing was a bit of a downer. I think it's a really nice exercise. Again, I don't think we do this very consciously. We all sort of imagine our own funerals and, you know, who would be weeping in the aisles. But what this exercise is, is about imagining that it's your funeral and three people get up from different phases or areas of your life. You can play around with it. What would you like people to say about you? What do you want them to say about what kind of person you are or were, what you did, how you treated other people? Kind of what people say at funerals. What do you want them to say pretty sure they won't talk about your kitchen extension, the car you drive, where you got your hair cut. They'll talk about how you interacted with other people, how you treated others, how you treated the set yourself, how you treated the world, how you treated strangers. And I think it puts you in touch with what do you want someone to say? I think that's really quite powerful. And it guides you about what's important to you because that's how you want to be remembered. Then there's a second stage, which is you have to think, well, am I living those values as well as I can? Maybe you are, and that's great. But maybe it can be quite painful because you could feel quite far from that. But actually, that's an opportunity to tell you that this is what matters to you. And, you know, we're here once. How are you going to show that value? And what I really like about thinking about values is if you think about them not as a kind of description just of yourself, but a kind of how you do things. So maybe maybe kindness is something you really care about. Well, you don't just go around saying, I'm kind. It's how do you show I'm kind? Well, if today I thought, right, that is important to me. I could be kind to you. I could be kind to the person I bump into as I walk out of here. I can show kindness from the second I decide. And that I am in control of. And I think that's a really, really lovely thing. You can do it in the smallest possible ways. I think that's the kind of really crucial bit of the puzzle of resilience is your values, like what matters to you and asking yourself those big questions. We don't always do it. We are sometimes defined by our problems. People don't 
aren't interested. So we have to kind of do it for ourselves. Another thing I think many of us fall victim of in this Mm. day and age is staying incredibly busy all the time because it's uncomfortable to sit in the feelings and it's uncomfortable to feel like you're not doing what you should be doing. How would you advise someone who comes to you and says, if I'm not moving, if I'm not doing something, if I'm not achieving something, if I'm not working towards a goal, obviously one has to have purpose in life. Hmm. But what would you say to them? Maybe that works for that person. So I wouldn't say I'd rule out being busy all the time if that's what works for you. If you are able to be present and you're living your values, then knock yourself out. And you'll know whether that's happening. It's a question of what you're trying to avoid. Are you doing something that is about taking you away from difficult thoughts and feelings, which we all do, right? There's, I mean, I really want to stress that. It's not like you should, at every single moment of every day, be deeply in touch with yourself and make room for everything. You know, as I say in the book, you know, I like sitting in front of the telly eating chocolate biscuits and avoiding stuff. But it's when it's that is your only strategy for everything that's the problem. So I don't want to kind of pathologize what is very normal behavior and I'm not giving up my biscuits in front of the TV. It's seeing the context in which a behavior happens rather than saying it is good or bad. It's the context in that. Do you do that to avoid sitting with that emotion? And does that then cause you problems in other ways? Was that busyness in and of itself isn't a problem for a lot of people. If the busyness is, I literally can't be with myself, ultimately that will catch up with you. I know. I'm curious as to whether someone can be balanced mentally if they are always Always busy. Yeah, Yeah, it's a really good question. I guess you could go to work and be busy on your phone on the way to work, then be busy at work or busy at home and busy at the weekend. I guess you could never sit with yourself ever. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm getting at. I think it's that ability to sometimes just sit with the nothingness. I think it's also a problem in this modern age of people feeling like they need to be constantly on this road to progression, self-betterment, self-improvement, doing yes. courses. Turning your hobby into a side hustle. And, exactly. Yeah, and then everything a has triathlon to... into an Ironman and then an Ironman into a sort of row across the Pacific. And then, you know, if you're a lawyer, you should be doing a course in life coaching. And mm. it's not okay just to be where be you are. Where, yeah. It's a really, really interesting question. In truth, I don't know the answer, I suppose. I think I would err on whether on the context of situations. But I think, and again, I'd say if if it's about avoidance, if you think about whether you're running towards something, so your valued life, or you're running away from something, maybe that's an indication of what you're doing, mm. of whether what you're doing is helpful. It's so hard because it's caught up as well with our focus on goals. Am I achieving enough? And sometimes that part of us is great because we do things like it's your, you've done this podcast and achieved that because you've been driven to do that goal. I suppose the other thing that I'm thinking of as saying is having an understanding of the, the brain systems that we have. So one is fight or flight. The other one is dopamine driven. So it's finding partners, having sex, buying houses, gathering and accumulating. It's the high you get from hearing you've got the job or whatever. But then actually there's this other part that we never learn about, which is the oxytocin mediated part of our brain, which is the sort of part where we can soothe ourselves 
And all of those, it's what we would call the non-wanting part of the brain. And they all need to be in balance. And probably what we end up doing is prioritizing the dopamine one to deal with the fight or flight bit. And how easy is that to do, right? You can buy stuff, you can go online, you can get drunk, you can go out with friends, you can avoid that. But actually, learning the skills to stimulate that oxytocin part of your brain is also a really important way of bringing down those anxieties. So maybe it's those people do the dopamine thing and you do need to learn to sit with yourself to do the other bit a little. Yeah, being able to engage your parasympathetic nervous system and getting better at employing that as a tactic rather than constantly like living on that edge, as you said, to get that instant dopamine hit. And I never wanted to be that person who was like, breathing is really helpful, but who knew it turned out it is. I know, I'm I'm a real proponent of breathing. I, I have know. to say it's really helped me and I've only just started really doing it. And it's not to say that I lie there for half an hour every day doing my breath work, but it's just fitting it in. And when you're mindful of it, you're saying like, my goodness, I'm not breathing, you know, yeah. and, and really kind of doing those deep breaths. And just knowing that actually having a longer out breath than an in breath will immediately start activating that parasympathetic part of your nervous system, which is the part that calms you down. Is a tiny thing you could do when you're feeling quite anxious. In terms of visualization, what would you say is the most helpful visualization tool for people detaching themselves from their thoughts? So I think quite a nice one is we often see in images, don't we? It might not be that you have the thought, I'm a failure or I'm really useless at my job. It might be instead it comes in the form of like a sort of daydream where your boss is like really berating you for being useless and makes you feel awful. And images have a much stronger impact on the brain and then our physiology than just words do. So often those kind of images come to our mind. They're not always thoughts and they're incredibly compelling, right? Maybe you imagine having an argument with a friend or really difficult conversation. I'm sure you've had that experience. And we can get up, caught up in that even more easily, I think, than we can get caught up in, I'm an imposter. Yeah, usually there's an image that goes along with that, that, you know, I could have had, I'm going to come here and Pandora is going to stand up on the table and go fraud and point her finger at me and throw me out, right? Get all caught up in that. So one way of managing that is to see it as just an image and you can play with the properties of that image. So turn that sequence in your head black and white. Imagine it on an iPhone as a video you swipe past. Imagine it on a TV screen and you can turn it off. Or I like one where I'm watching it on a massive cinema screen and sort of eating popcorn. And I see it just as images. So the idea is you're just seeing it as stuff your brain generates. But because it's an image, it's incredibly compelling. So you can play with the properties of it very easily in your your mind. You can turn it upside down. Imagine a crack running through it. And and the idea isn't necessarily you're trying to get rid of it. You're just trying to see that it's just an image. That's all it is. I don't have to get really caught up in that. So I think those are some of my favorite ones. Yeah. And and I guess in doing so, it helps you create that distance because you're you're then immediately kind of by doing, employing a different tool, creating that space. Exactly. Well, I could go on for hours talking to you. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation and I think your work is just brilliant. I really do. I just, I want another book, please. Oh, oh, 
then I better get on to it for 2023. Thank you so much for inviting me. I've loved talking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Thank you.